Hi and welcome to the podcast You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Chris Mancini of the Comedy Film Nerds podcast. He's a documentarian and a writer and a comedian. We had a fantastic chat about everything from freedom of speech to the process of creation of a comic book, which is something that he has just done. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Now, there's a few plugs. This should be done at about three minutes, so don't worry too much if you want to skip ahead. First of all, Ethos, my uh, most recent uh, hour-long show, is available on my Patreon only for uh, $5 subscribers. So you can just subscribe for a month and then unsubscribe at the end of the month. Put a note in your diary. I don't want to steal your money. Uh, but that's the, I've done it that way uh, because I'm shopping it around to various platforms and uh, they might want exclusivity, so it's just secretly for my secret little Patreon club of people who might want to see it. Uh, and it's up there, and it's very nicely filmed at the Museum of Comedy last year. My new show, Mythos, is now here with me in London, in my head, but I will be performing it at uh, various dates. You can follow me on Twitter to find that at, at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, but the most notable one is the 10th of July at the Museum of Comedy, and by notable, I mean the one I can remember. So that's that's a show I'm happy. I've run it in uh, in Australia, and I'm I think it's going to be a good show, so I'm excited if you want to come along and see it do i have various other previews which i'll be uh, tweeting about email me alicerfraser at gmail.com i love getting them i love talking to you it's always a delight to hear back from people who are listening and speaking of listening ben wren has put this together for me this editing sound editing any we did this via skype which i tend not to like to do um we recorded it with with chris mancini in la and me here in london and that can be a, a process of stitching together things, particularly over Skype, if there are some delays. So thank you so much to Ben Wren, who's done that for me. Uh, he is truly the reason that anything sounds even listenable too. Enough of my blithering. I'm sure I have more things to plug, but I won't do that now. I'll let you get on with listening to the podcast. Um, and I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, who are you and what are you drinking? <laughs> Hi, I'm Chris Mancini. I'm a comedian and a writer from uh, the States, I guess you could say. And um, <laughs> I am drinking uh, green tea, but I'm a big fan of uh, loose leaf tea. But I uh, got lazy this morning and did a Keurig. Oh, a Keurig. <laughs> What's that? Is that the sort of pods? It's a pod, yeah, but they have green tea for uh, the pot so I just throw it in and then uh, it just heats up goes through and then I've got instant green tea that's wild and some mm. somehow terrifying I think yes part of what I like about tea is the process of it I'm also drinking I'm drinking actually a Thai blue tea called Opium Hill uh, which oh, that sounds uh, great and illegal <laughs> it's it's really delicious, uh, but it's it's very much like a green tea. Andy Zaltzman gave mm. it to me as a Christmas present, yes. um, which is nice. Do you listen to The Bugle over there in the U U.S.? Uh, I don't. Mm -mm. It's a great podcast. You should listen. It I'm is. very I funny should. on it. <laughs> I, will, I will check it out for sure. I'm writing it down right now. Uh, the Bugle. Uh, so do you prefer tea over coffee? I do. I actually, the only coffee I like is coffee ice cream. That's the only time I'll, uh, I'll have coffee. Uh, but I'm a huge tea fan. I like um, everything from green tea to black tea. Earl Grey makes me sick, but uh, there's nothing like a, a hard, hard, a real hearty English breakfast tea. Very to nice. Just going in in the morning. I mean, that's amazing. But then I also like oolong really good if it's brewed properly and um i, th I found another one that was at a restaurant i never had before it's a, it's a gunpowder yes gunpowder uh, sort of smoky yeah yeah it's really good so i'm a huge tea fan oh that that's very good you're my kind mm -hmm. of people i remember the only kind of coffee i can drink is the coffee we had when i was growing up and we spent time in burma or now myanmar um there was this stuff called three in one which was one-third uh, powdered milk, one-third instant coffee powder, and one-third sugar powder. And you would just add hot water, and it was so sweet and so milky. So basically coffee, hot coffee ice cream. Uh, yeah, that's what actually sounds pretty uh, pretty good. And like a, you get a lot of flavor and calories in a short amount of time. It was absolutely <laughs> delicious. But yes, other than that, I'm, I'm a tea person because I, like mm -hmm. I like the fact that tea goes for as long as you want it to. 
Mm-hmm. You can be, you know, coffee's kind of, there's a, an upper limit on how much coffee you can have, but tea lasts for the length of whatever conversation you're having because you can just yeah, keep I going. don't even mind it when it gets lukewarm. I'm like, you know what? Still tea. Yeah. Still good. Such yeah. a thing as iced tea. Mm-hmm. It's still delicious. Um, it starts as one beverage and then ends as another. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> what other what other drinks do that? Very few. I guess milk no. can turn into yogurt if you leave it for long enough. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what have you been wrestling with recently? Uh, you know, it's funny when you sent me that email. I'm like, what have you been wrestling with? I'm like, uh, is the answer like everything? Do you overthink everything and self-doubt and uh, have trouble making decisions? And I'm thinking, yes. How could I? How could I pick just one thing? That's so hard. But uh, I think the two things I would pick that are at the top is um, when you work freelance, as, as we know in this business, mm-hmm. you you're always wondering about decisions you made. Should I have taken that job? Should I have not taken that job? Should I have gone to this party? Should I have talked to this person? Should I have written this spec script? Should I have written this project? Should I have spent all this time on a Kickstarter? Should I have um, you know, tried to contact this showrunner and that. So there's a thousand moving pieces at any given moment. So, and there's only a limited bandwidth that we have as human beings. So you always wonder like, what was the best thing to do to maximize my career results? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard thing. I feel that, uh, I have a dread when I go. So for example, I've, I've spent, uh, three months, four months in Australia doing the Australian festival season. And then I've just arrived mm-hmm. back in London and, Every time I fly away from a country for an extended period of time, I have this feeling of dread and sorrow. And I've realized it's that I feel like I'm killing an alternate universe version of myself, the one that stayed in Australia, the one that stayed in London and didn't go to Australia. I couldn't agree more. And it got to the point where I was having these thoughts as much. I started writing them as stories. And uh, I started this weird um, scripted horror Twilight Zone type podcast called Conversations from the Abyss. I've listened to it. It's delightful. Oh, thank you. And uh, one of them, the episodes was called Multiples. Uh, I got Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. And it talks about meeting yourself from another universe. And like that person that's yourself made different decisions. And you wonder, are you meeting a better version of yourself? or worse, or what would you say to someone that is you that made different decisions in another universe? That is a really good premise, because I feel like on one perspective of it, every decision you make splits, you know, in this kind of theory of the multiple quantum universe, every decision, you know, turning left or turning right. But I feel like, and again, I don't know if this is a thing for you, but there are points in my life, very clear where big decisions were made or not made. There's a handful of really big ones that feel like that split. Yeah, what moving out to LA was a big one. Getting married, having children, those were the big ones for sure. And, uh, you know, you always look back to those moments in your life because, you know, when when you're kind of set, like, you know, I have a house, two kids, a wife, and then, you know, there's a lot of less of those decisions is like, well... I'm 22 and single. I could move wherever I want, you know, and no one else will be affected. (laughs) So, you know, you you get to the point where, you know, you make these decisions and even smaller ones, I think, as you get older, become a little more important because it affects more people. Um, But yeah, I totally feel that way for sure. And I also look back on like, um, when I was younger and making like a lot of uh, possibly crazy decisions, I think like, <laughs> would I would I do those again? Do would I would I do those now? Like you look back and like with uh, you know with contemporary glasses uh, back to your past. So it, it's always interesting and also futile to look at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to look back at your old decisions. <laughs> Absolutely futile, uh, especially. And again, this is something that preoccupies me, of course, because my mum was sick for a long time and then died. Mm -hmm. But there were people towards the end of her life when it came to, like, the treatment options and the various decisions that were made in that last six months of her life of, like, what would you change? Would you, you know, what regrets do you have? But my mum was sick from the time before I was born. So Mm -hmm. there's, it goes so far back, you can't, pick one point at which you would have changed the course of things. Right. Because they're all so tied together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it creates uh, ultimately a tapestry 
it mm. becomes you know your life and then you know when you pull on one string or chord it um you realize it resonates through the entire thing so it's really interesting the way if you look back on like a kind of like your entire life and the decisions you've made well this it, it it makes you think that tapestry perspective of of how your life is that sense of yourself is interwoven with all the people around you and this kind of uh influence you have the impact cause and effect you have in the world uh makes you think of time as a kind of a flat plane in the way that's really hard to think about when you like you hear about time travel stories or einstein theory of relativity or whatever but when you think of that as a kind of there's a a couple of different uh, native tribes indigenous tribes some in australia i think some in canada that conceive of us walking through time backwards so that's why we can see the past, but we can't see the future. So we're walking. <laughs> oh, interesting. Which I yeah. always think of as a really interesting way to think about time. It's because, uh, yeah, you're, you're going backwards, you're looking back. In a way, too, it also gives you blinders because that's the only place you're looking. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm like, well, no, let's, uh, why don't I just focus on the mistakes I've made instead of the future that's coming up that I can still <laughs> Do you get eaten up by regret? Sometimes, you know, it goes back and forth. It's, uh, you know, it goes between gratitude and regret. I think, you know, you, you look back, I'm like, yep, okay, that I'm really grateful for that. Well, that I could have done better. And, uh, you know, you, and I think as, because we're human beings, I, I've yet to meet someone that went, nope, did everything right. Everything's good, you know. <laughs> I don't have. I have zero regrets about uh, the last fifty years. So I bet those people—they're what you call sociopaths. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a. It's a. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Gratitude is quite an overused term. I think a lot mm. of people say that they're grateful when, in fact, what they are is smug. <laughs> <laughs> They're, uh, yeah, it's um, I'm like, well, there's also that, that little piece of like, well, this is what I'm supposed to say and uh, <laughs> not really how I feel because you can always sense that undertone every once in a while. Yeah, I feel like as with many things nowadays, paying lip service to something is seen as sufficient, that if you say you're grateful, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, in in real life with a, interpersonal relationship when you're talking Mm. about your friends or something if you're grateful for something that your friends have done you Mm. behave in a grateful way you you try to help Mm. them or you try to make life better for the people around you because you're grateful that's what gratitude is but just saying oh hashtag grateful hashtag blessed is you know i i feel like you know lip service is the kind of thing that like um you know, the underlying subtext is like, look, I just want you to shut up. (laughs) When you're saying saying something like, yeah, I just, I want to be left alone. I don't want to talk about this. I just, yes, this is is how I feel. Really? Are you sure? No, not not talking about it anymore. Goodbye. So. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting thing when it comes to things like uh, apologies, because those are Mm -hmm. super relevant nowadays. And, And I've certainly been on the wrong side of an apology before where I've just wanted to say, look, I've said I'm sorry, <laughs> you know. Right. Isn't that enough? <laughs> yeah. And it isn't. You know, it isn't mm-hmm. in a, a real relationship if you're talking to talking about a friend or a, a family member saying you're sorry isn't enough. You have to show that you're sorry. But also at the same time we're seeing this kind of, like with the hashtag Me Too movement, so many people are not accepting an apology like there's very few successful apologies and i wonder what a successful apology would look like that's a great question i mean because it has the success of an apology is contingent upon how it's received yes so it, it can't be a successful apology unless the other side um accepts it and receives it so it's an interesting thing it's uh, you know if you really break it down like an apology is one person doing wrong and then feeling bad for it and uh, expressing regret over doing that wrong thing. Uh, But there really is another half to it. You know, that person that was wronged or that person that uh, um, is, you know, listening to the apology, will they accept it or not? So you could have a sincere apology without the whole package of uh, the acceptance too. Yes, but then it comes, I mean, particularly when it comes to these kind of public apologies, 
So, for example, someone I like... Think those are the, I think those are their own animals. I mean, a public apology, then when you start getting into media, I, I swear, I don't think apologies were made for social media. <laughs> <laughs> really? You reckon? <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's working out with the uh, with the digital apologies. Well, I was having this conversation with a, a female comedian friend of mine talking about mm. Louis C.K., who recently tried to do some gigs in the UK. There was a big uproar, and those mm-hmm. gigs were cancelled. And she said, "I'm just not. I wouldn't accept his apology, even if he did apologize." Mm-hmm. And I, I was sort of like, "But he hasn't done anything to you, right?" Mm-hmm. So this idea of, you know. There is a public wrong that has been done, which is that the scene is not safe for young women because of people right. like him. She doesn't want Louis C.K. to apologise to her. She wants, you know, Dave down the road who runs that gig and constantly introduces you by your cup size to apologise right. to her. <laughs> but because, that may still be pending. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he doesn't, he hasn't been called out or he's not a public profile, but... Mm-hmm. These these public figures become representations of broader wrongs, and so it's impossible yes. for them to apologise in an adequate way, because mm-hmm. a they didn't do you a wrong, so they can't apologise to you personally. And yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a moral ambiguity when it comes to like these this weird, and this is a relatively new thing, mm. you know, like a, you know you know. 10, 20 years ago, if, if this happened, you know, someone would apologize. It'd be covered by three news networks and then it would be over the next next day. But, you know, when we have endless cycles of news and when we have, you know, constant social media, there's, you know, the picking apart of every single thing. And then there's also multiple sides to every single thing. Like, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that weren't wronged by Louis C.K. that do accept his apology. And there's a lot of people that don't. And it's everyone just kind of making their own um, moral decisions on, based on that. Um, you know, we're talking about the people that weren't wronged directly by him. Yes. So, so it's, you know, I, I'll tell you, sometimes I just kind of take a step back and just kind of take it all in and look at it like how everyone's kind of reacting. And I just kind of look at it with a very scientific eye looking for trends and, or, or patterns. And I have to say... I haven't found any. <laughs> it really, it really seems like everything's all over the map. Like, uh, um, you know, you think, oh, well, I wonder how people will react to this. I'm like, okay, that was predictable. Okay, that was not, and now it's still going eight weeks later. Yeah, so. what catches the public Im- imagination, mm-hmm. particularly with this stuff, where there's these, and sm- I don't mean to diminish them, small private wrongs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can be extreme wrongs, you know, harassment or assault, but they are person to person. Yeah. And or so even when just I say a really a really drug out, really bad argument that you could have with a, a spouse or somebody, I mean, that could, you know, that that could affect you even worse than something you, you know, the, you know, something else that a stranger does for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting thing. I spoke to a lady called Winnie M. Lee who wrote a book. She was uh, this, she was the subject of a, a big public case in Ireland. She was a tourist, an American lady, um, and she was raped in a public park in the middle of the day. And oh she God. was talking about how in the rape community which exists uh she feels like she's that's a a shame that that exists yes that that she's one of the able to put those two words together that's a shame yes that she's one of the lucky ones because (laughs) the wrong that was done to her was so blatant and so uh clear cut whereas most things that happen are happen with someone you know which makes it much Mm. more complicated and and in some ways more upsetting than a violent, aggressive stranger mm-hmm. because it doesn't affect your idea of your own judgment, of your own self, of your own relationship to people in your life. Um, but, yeah, to go back to, to the point I was making before, these kind of, and, again, not to say that they are small, but on a society level they're one-on-one, like Louis C.K., and I'm using that because I know we're both comedians and it's got name recognition but there's a sense that he also did something wrong to the world. And I'm not entirely sure that we've put a finger on what it was that he's done wrong to the world. 
Like we have a, a sense that he did something wrong to to us. And I don't. Th- that's a really good point because I don't think that's been defined yet. Is it that he was lying about who he was? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> or it could be like pieces of all these things. Like uh, it could be lying to who he was about who he was. Um, you know, a a history of bad behavior. It could be, you know, also because we're comedians, you know, do we know someone who we, he, um, you know, he personally wronged? So I, I don't, I don't know. Like uh, when you look at all the social media and when you look at the reactions and when you say like, uh, yeah, he did these things, but what was the insult that he, or, or the wrong that he did to the world? That's, you know, you could actually break that down with like um, even uh, just Harvey Weinstein too. Like, mm. you know, he's, he's going to prison, but you know, what else did he do? I, I, here's what I think is, is part of this equation. Because these um, th- these these people have been successful for so many years. Mm. And this behavior has been going on for so many years. You know, when it finally catches up with them, I think there's a little bit of, uh, uh, God, I don't even know what the word is, uh, maybe some resentment that they got away for it they got away with it for so long and they were so successful while they were engaging this behavior for so long, even if they got caught now, um, they've already benefited for years and years and years getting away with this behavior. Does it even matter what their punishment is now? Yes, that there's no punishment that could be big enough for... Yeah, for all the years of this uh, behavior. And and also that they then... then, That they benefited from it. I mean, that, you know, that that they totally were uh, unable to get caught or uh, called out on it for years and years. And I also think that to a certain extent, they do become the scapegoats. And I mean that in the sense of they did this terrible wrong. And Harvey Weinstein on this grand scale where there were millions of dollars involved and people's careers Mm -hmm. and all of this uh, stuff, but that... That it is that so many other people have been doing this kind of thing that when we finally get one, uh, he becomes, and not always he, but often he becomes mm-hmm. the the figurehead for every time something like that has happened to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think that's a, a, a really interesting dynamic because it's it's not, I don't know... I, it's something that I, I wrestle with or that I wonder about in, in terms of sub-criminal behaviour, things that are not criminal but are wrong right. and gross and icky. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we punish there's, them? There's plenty of that, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that that's a great question. I mean, uh, I, I think we should start with the crimes. <laughs> yes. And then maybe work our way down. <laughs> I I agree. I think that there's an unfortunate conflation that happens in the discourse because it is a, it's a, um, it feels like there's a a slippery slope, that they're all kind of part of a continuum. But there is a line on that continuum. There's a very clear, bright line between criminality and not criminality that I think Mm -hmm. is worth drawing attention to. Oh, for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I, I find it just... So many people now aren't people to us anymore. I get this on online as a woman online. Uh, occasionally someone will just comment on one of my things. Women aren't funny. And that has absolutely nothing to do with me. No, not at all. You know, why am I Why am I women <laughs> all of a sudden? <laughs> you know, I thought I was just a person. But all mm-hmm. of a sudden I am representative of... Mm. 51% of the population. You know, in a weird way, it's actually less insulting if uh, you would get a tweet, Alice Frazier isn't funny. <laughs> it's like, it's almost, it's almost like, oh, okay, well, this is a, a specific opinion. I can dismiss it, but, uh, you know, you're not, um, you know, indicting my entire gender yes. with this comment. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we, we've talked about it for sure on the uh, on the Comedy Film Nerds podcast, and it's it's that, and we try to make sure that, you know, when we have interactions with fans and that they're always kept civil and polite with each other and with us, and uh, we make it a point to police that. But one of the things that's interesting is that um, there's so much anonymous content on the internet that people are emboldened to say things they wouldn't normally say. I mean, this is an argument we've made over mm-hmm. years and years, but people people say things 
that like if someone was right in front of you after a show, it's very unlikely they would say that to you. But if they're thousands of miles away in a basement with a computer, they everyone feels emboldened because there's no consequence of like throwing a tweet out and then um, you know and then and then that's it. You know, anonymous tweet like oh they'll never know who I am. You we, know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's road and rage I, writ large. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I also have a theory that there's only four people on the internet that are trolls and they just all have supercomputers. <laughs> and they're just uh, they're just going around to every feed and uh, <laughs> making people angry. That's a nice way to <laughs> that's a nice uh, way to look at the world. I like that. I, I find yeah, it, there, there there aren't millions of trolls. It's just four with supercomputers. That's it. I think so. a, a good analogy is is boxing where mm-hmm. it used to be boxing was bare knuckle boxing. Uh, mm-hmm. and they would fight each other with bare fists. And eventually, um, A, your fists start to hurt and bleed and you just can't keep doing that. So they'd have these incredibly bloody fights and people would get their noses broken or break their hands or whatever. And then they brought in gloves and everyone thought, oh, well, that's a lot safer. You can right. punch someone incredibly hard 30 times in the head a day for mm-hmm. five years but there's a, a long-term pernicious damage that blooms as a result of that. Yes. And I think we haven't yet even seen that yet in well, society. Also hel- helmets on football players too is the same thing. It's the same thing. It, and so mm-hmm. when it's person to person, if you're doing this kind of interpersonal, uh, I, I'm reluctant to ever call speech violence, but interpersonal mm. aggression, then you you can't do that for long. <laughs> like you'll draw blood. It'll come back on you. You'll see the pain in their face. You'll feel the pain of that. Most people aren't sociopathic to the extent that they could hurt someone to their face in this continuous way. You know, negative energy feeds on itself. Like, you know, more negative energy thrown onto a negative conversation is, is certainly not going to make it better. It's just going to make it larger. It's like a fire. Yeah. You know, you don't keep throwing fire on a fire to make it smaller. <laughs> no. You, know, you have to throw the opposite. You have to throw water on it. So, um, uh, Unless it's, it's an oil thing. fire or an electrical fire, in which case <laughs> you need a sort yeah. of a foam thing. <laughs> you, need a, you need an ABC extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you go about policing the community? Because you have this podcast, Comedy Film Nerds. Yes. Um, and nerds about films have strong mm. opinions. They do. Nerds of all um, kinds have strong opinions. I think nerds generally have a very strong, uh, almost tendency towards black and white thinking, very strong thinking, and it's one of the great qualities of many nerds that I know, but it also does lead to this kind of loud opinion. Yes, the um, and there's it's something that you have to cultivate, for sure. It doesn't just happen. And one of the things we do, the first thing we do is... Um, kind of you could say like uh, show by example mm. like even if, when Graham and I disagree on a movie or something we're always civil and uh, um, um, never dismissive of the other person so you know if we're not doing it on the show like if we were doing that on the show and calling out people on Twitter for it we'd be hypocrites mm. so w- it wouldn't matter so um, that's the first thing we do and we're also respectful of guests even if they have uh, opinions that we vastly disagree with well I mean that's and, the uh, point of this <laughs> podcast is showing yes. that you can have fraught discussions on heated topics in a reasonable and human Mm. way so i i think that's a very good way to do it and then the the second part of it is um you know our message boards don't have a ton of activity but mainly our activity is on twitter and facebook and we police them we make sure and uh when people disagree we make sure they say well you have to start with point of order and then uh And then you uh, you give us your opinion. And, you know, we get some great emails and we get, you know, some great tweets and Facebook posts and people are really, you know, even if they strongly disagree with us, they're they're civil about it. And a lot of times, like uh, a differing opinion or uh, another point that we make, you know, and sometimes it's also corrections, we like and retweet them. You know, we're, we're certainly not going to um, bury a, 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 a differing opinion. So, you know, we, we have had, I'd say, you know, in the decade that we've been doing it, we've had only a handful of trolls and we just block them. And then eventually they get bored and go away. Mm. So, you know, if a troll's not getting, you know, the whole thing, don't feed it, feed the trolls. If you don't give them attention, they, they lose interest and, and go away. But like, but like I said, it's been very few. Like I could say maybe over a decade, it's been a handful. That's it. 
That's really good. I I tend to I go one step further with trolls, which is if I'm on your watching your Twitter, for example, watching your mm. Twitter, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> if I'm looking at your Twitter and mm. I'll see a troll coming for you, I'll block them mm. in advance of them ever knowing I exist. <laughs> that is a good preemptive strike for it's sure. <laughs> super satisfying. You're like that person yeah. will mm. never be in my life. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Then we won't even know that I'm around to harass. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and then on the other on the other side, I did a whole podcast series for the ABC called Troll Play, which was about trolls. Mm. Uh, oh, hilarious! Yeah. yeah, there's plenty to talk about. I'm sure. Yeah, well, I, I wanted mm-hmm. to do something that wasn't the kind of deep dive on the, you know, dark triad of sociopathy mm-hmm. that makes people be it. I didn't want to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to just make it light. Mm-hmm. I, the, my goal for the whole project was that the next time someone a troll comes for me, I think, oh, I've got a funny joke for that, rather than, oh god, people are horrible. Because <laughs> both reactions are, uh, you know, are correct. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> uh, so uh, you are now currently launching something. I am. It's been uh, many years in the making. Uh, I'm launching a comic book, and wow. it's called. Uh, it, it's been really uh, a long road, but really fun. It's called Long Ago and Far Away, and uh, I kickstarted it a couple of years back. I was able to get it done with the help of like the podcasting community and comedy film nerds fans, and but also podcasts like you know uh, and you know comedians and. Um, friends like you who, you know, always help out and are always supportive. And, you know, when the community comes together, then it's possible to get these crowdfunding projects made. And um, it was a story that I had in my head for many years. It was one of those things that was in development, out of development. I could never really get it out into the world, but it was that kind of story that nags at you that wouldn't let go. And uh, it's the story about, um, if you ever read like the Chronicles of Narnia, like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. I was always a sucker about how a kid would go into this fantasy world, save the day, fight the witch, come back to our world. But then I thought, well, what happens to that kid when he's 30, runs a comic book store, you know, and uh, he's an (laughs) asshole, and then he has to go back in that world again as an adult. So, Oh, I really like that premise. So that's that's the um, the idea of the book. It's called Long Ago and Far Away, and it's on Comixology right now. It's only a dollar ninety nine an issue, and you can grab it. It's with uh, SBI Press. They're the company that does Rick and Morty and a bunch of cool animated shows, and they have their own uh, comic book line. But it was one of those stories too that, as I was writing it, like I wanted it to be kind of a uh, a cool, fun, funny, broad comedy fantasy, like you know, kind of like, well, what if the guys from Clerks got stuck in a fantasy world? That kind of thing. But as I was writing it, it actually got deeper and it kind of ties into some of the things we were talking about today. Mm. Really is it's about a journey about a guy who kind of peaked at 13, lost his way in his life, and now he has a second chance to get his shit together, but just in a fantasy realm. So it ends up being a very personal story about losing your way, never giving up on your dreams, and then um, hopefully finding that way again. I really like that. What's the process of going from this story, this idea, which is a great idea, mm-hmm. uh, but you know we're comedians, we are surrounded by great ideas. How do you? How <laughs> all do the you? Time. All the time. <laughs> and the difference between you know success and failure is getting it done. What's the yes. process of from idea to now? You have this finished product. It's available. I'm downloading it on my phone right now. Yes. <laughs> well, it's. Uh... Um, the first thing to know is to not be afraid to fail because yes. it was originally written as a, um, a different medium, like a screenplay. It didn't, it, I couldn't get traction on it. Like I said, it got a development, didn't go anywhere. And then I was like, well, let me reimagine this to, with a different medium because I think comic books would be great because they're so visual. Mm. So, uh, and I don't need $200 million to shoot it. So. <laughs> So the process becomes first, like, how can I get this in the world in the best possible medium where I, it, it's, it'll be best served and it'll best serve the story? And I thought graphic novel, comic books. So then the next phase after that, all right, well, you know, I can't get an artist for free to write, to draw 200 pages. So we need to, we need some funding for that. So, um, I set up like some sample pages, some sample dialogue and put all that together into a Kickstarter 
and uh, was able to raise the money. And all the money went to the artists and the letters. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't take anything for it. I just wanted to get it made. Mm. And that's pretty much how the first half went. And then, actually, I should say third. The first third was raising the money for it. The second third was actually making the book. And then the third third, the last one, is trying to get it out there in the world. Like, I, I we could sell it on Comedy Film Nerds. That's great. But... It's better if it gets picked up with a publisher, too, because then people all over the world through digital can actually get it, too. Like uh, um, now, because Comixology is part of Amazon, it, there's a Comixology any, in any country in the world. So anybody can get it, like, you know, Australia, UK, France, it doesn't matter. Um, and that's like the the next part of it, where I, as many people as possible can actually um, really... Uh, get a chance to take a look at it but then there's a, a a part after that that i'm working on and this is because our entertainment industry is so insane it's like to get a feature film or a tv show made now it has to be what's called an ip first which is an intellectual property which means it has to be a book or a comic book first so it's kind of going in a circle so now it's an ip a comic book now i will go back and try to make it a tv or a movie again <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the television industry now is so fragmented mm -hmm. and fearful, yes. I think, that they they don't take chances on unknown properties anymore. So something already has to have a big audience behind it. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Or at least a, a proof of concept uh, yeah. in execution. It's it's two things they look for now when they look at new projects. Um, a project that already exists somewhere else that has a, a decent following or a large resume of the person bringing it to them. Yes. So, and it's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I, I remember too, just hearing like pitching, like when everything was going down with, um, you know, 9-11 and all of these things, like a year later, there were all these like Homeland Security shows and development mm -mm -mm. stuff. And there were no scripts or anything. They were just, you know, you know, uh, making deals with showrunners to create it. You know, it's that kind of thing where, um, you know, just, well, it doesn't, we're, we're not looking at the, what it is. And, and it's always too like, well, we need the next Lost. Well, what was Lost the next thing of? Yeah. Like, you know, the whole point is that these are new shows. Well, we need the next X-Files. Well, what was the first X-Files? You know, it was that kind of thing where, you know, the shows that do very well are the ones that aren't the next X anything or the ones that, uh, you know, show a new vision and a new voice and all of these things. And so it's always that, um, thing that Hollywood never gets that don't chase a trend, you know, because those trends end. And, you know, a lot of these shows like Lost is lightning in a bottle. How are you going to recapture? Like, well, give me that Lost feel. Well, no, it's only Lost has that Lost feel, you know, create a new feel that people can uh, gravitate towards. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I think that's that's a very good insight into the process of the industry. You did skip over step two in that, getting it made. Yes, I did that for sure. That's uh, that's the other uh, big part of it is, and I'll tell you, it was the most fun out of all of it. Like to get the um, sketches back from the artist, make notes, and then go to the letter, tweak dialogue, and all of that thing. All of those things really reminded me of um, making independent film. It was that kind of thing. Like you're almost like looking at dailies or um, or rough footage. It's like, oh, this looks awesome. Now let me tweak and change this here and then you know this will make it better and it was uh it was a really fun great process it's a lot of work but it's it, it, when your work as an artist starts to come to life even in those preliminary stages it's very rewarding and very uh, satisfying for sure did you have a sense visually as you were writing it of what the page would look like or is that very much a sort of a collaborative process with the artist you want the story and then they figure out how that looks visually? Or do you have a very strong visual determination before they've even started drawing of where things should be on the page? It's interesting. Writing comic books actually becomes, uh, it's almost like a misnomer where you're actually writing and directing because ah. you're telling the artist like how many panels there are in the page and what's going on in each panel. So you're really uh, almost like directing or uh, creating storyboards for a film. So it's actually very specific. And one of the things that's so important is to get the right artist. Like I had interviewed a couple artists, but uh, again, through podcasting, I found this great artist, uh, Fernando Pinto down in uh, Chile. Mm. And uh, what, what made it even better is when I first emailed him, he went, oh, I know who you are. I listened to your podcast. And I'm like, oh my God, fantastic. Now I don't have to explain humor or jokes. You know, we <laughs> yeah. already had a shorthand. Um, 
So, uh, you know, and then you work when you do 200 pages with someone, you get a real shorthand for sure. And uh, he's been great. And uh, he's a fantastic artist. And I can't imagine like as I look at the book now, I can't imagine anybody else doing it for sure. I mean, that's it's an incredible thing. I think comic books, because you, you don't think of uh, a book as having a rhythm exactly. But comic books so clearly do have a rhythm to them in the way that an artist can control your eye and how long you spend on each picture by making something more detailed or less detailed so you can have a slow section or a fast section. Mm -hmm. And it's it's definitely a... um, Everything that that happens in a film happens in a comic book. Like, it's everything from tone to pacing to um, feel. All of that can be conveyed through those comic book panels, which is really interesting. And that's another thing I discovered as I was doing it. Like, oh, this is, you know, you can evoke these same emotions. One of the differences, you don't have a soundtrack in your ears unless you add it in yourself mm. when, you're, uh, when you're reading. But I was talking to one, one of the people that helped me with this uh, project was uh, Mark Wade. It was a big comic book writer. And again, found him through podcasting. It was great. And he said something interesting to me about writing comics. He said, I can only surprise you at the top of the next page. Because when you have a comic book open, (laughs) you know, you don't know, you can see all the panels, but you don't know what's going to happen on the next page until you turn it. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing to say about pacing. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought Mm -hmm. about that at all. But Mm -hmm. for example, like in a film, you could have a jump start, like something jumps Mm -hmm. out at you. In a Mm -hmm. comic book, you can have a surprise, but it can't be... It can't be as sudden in a way because it can't be out of context. It has to follow on. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really a really interesting dynamic. And I found too, as a as a comedian and comedy writer, like I would use the panel specifically to set up jokes. Like it's one of the things I didn't always see in even humor comics. Like I kind of applied the stand up comic pacing of a joke uh, to the comic book pages. Like I would have occasionally like a pregnant pause, like a character would say something, there would be a deadpan panel, and then there would be like a reaction to kind of slow down the pacing of the the setup and the punchline. And I've also found too, some of the jokes work the best when um, the heart of the joke is in the reaction to the character that's hearing it. Uh So I I found it was really interesting to put that in, in visual terms for a comic book. So there were some extra panels that I was thinking, I don't know, unless you're a stand up or... You may not understand why I'm doing this, but when you see it all together, you'll you'll get it. You'll get to see where the jokes are and, and how they flow. Because sometimes it's good to slow a joke down and sometimes it's good to speed it up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that is not something... Do you have a hunger now to do more comics, comic books? Is this now a language that you feel sort of inspired by? Yes, I want to do more, for sure. <laughs> I've got another one I'm working on that... Uh, I'm hoping I won't have to kickstart, depending <laughs> on how this one does. But if I do, uh, I've already started the preliminary um, art and uh, character design, and the script is done. So I'm getting uh, I'm getting closer on the second project too. I mean, much mm-hmm. much yeah. like uh, grant writing, or uh, mm-hmm. it seems like kickstarting is its own art form. It is. I mean, it's it's weird to say because when you look at Kickstarters and the page, you're like, oh, well, that, that probably didn't take that long to set up. You just throw a bunch of rewards in. There's a quick video and, you know, you just put some text in. Uh, it took me probably two to three months to just set up the Kickstarter because everything from getting the initial artwork to writing the proper text to putting links into the rewards to getting the video um, edited because I... You know, I have friends, I, I use like professional video editors because uh, uh, from doing independent film for so long, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to make a video, I don't want it to look like a YouTube video. I want it to look nice and polished, even if it's just Kickstarter. But uh, it takes a really long time. And if there's anybody thinking of Kickstarting anything, don't be afraid to uh, click save instead of publish when you're <laughs> setting up your uh, <laughs> your Kickstarter page. I mean, that is good let advice as, for life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let it take a little longer so, you know, you have a little more time to uh, prep because preparation uh, and promotion are the two keys for a successful Kickstarter. Like, I couldn't have done it alone. Uh, it was That was my third Kickstarter and it was, uh, the third successful Kickstarter. And there's no way, even just with 
um, you know, the the fans and the comedy film nerds fans. You, you need you need more people. You needed to get the comic book fans. You needed to get people on other podcasts. And it's you know that's when the the comedy community really comes together to help out each other, which is great. Like I'm happy to support other Kickstarters too. I've I've given money to a bunch, and I realize that that's kind of how you give back too. So if uh, you know your friends help you with the Kickstarter, make sure you help them with theirs. Was is there any big mistakes that you've made in the process of doing Kickstarters that you would warn other people of? Yes, physical rewards. <laughs> because uh, what happened, it took so long to get the book finished. Mm. Um, everything went up in price in that extra, you know, 12 to 16 months. Everything from the postage to the printing of the book. So all of a sudden, my budget was off. Uh-huh. And it was already off before because I had... Um, you know, I missed a couple contingencies here and there. So um, if you can do something that only has digital rewards that you could deliver very easily, that's a great way to go. Um, or if you're, if you're like, no, I like physical rewards. I got to do physical rewards. Budget far more than you think you need for them in time and in money. Because it's not just the money. You got to sit and, uh, uh, you know, stuff the envelopes and address the the uh, address them too unless you're paying somebody to do it in which case it's more money <laughs> it's either time or money you're going to be spending uh, both just uh, plan on a lot of each that's a lesson for life everything is yeah. always <laughs> takes longer and is more expensive than you think it's going to yes. be <laughs> constantly <laughs> I always think it's interesting to ask about uh, failure um, and there's a there's a story that I often come back to which is uh, back when there was no computers they had a war maths department um in the first world war they had a war maths department people who did the mathematics of war uh, supply Mm -hmm. and uh, troop numbers and all of these you know small things that need to be done for thousands and thousands of people and they had compasses and protractors yes exactly and there was a, a a thing that was happening with the planes that would go out these uh first kind of air fights that they were having the planes would go out and then they would come back and they'd have bullet holes in them and they were trying to figure out how to armor the planes to lead to less casualties and so they I'm sorry I'm still I'm still here did you say air fight so <laughs> air fighting yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> is there another word for fighting in the air uh, dog fighting yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of dogs with wings. Uh, yeah, I know. It's even dumber with the actual word, is dog fighting. <laughs> but I, but I, don't, I don't just mean those. I mean also the bombers and so on and so forth. Of course, but yes. But they'd come mm-hmm. back with bullet holes in them. Mm-hmm. And then, so what was happening was they realized after a while that they would armor over the planes in the places mm-hmm. where they had been shot, these planes that were coming right. back. And it wasn't reducing the number of casualties. It wasn't bringing back more planes. They were still having the same number of losses in the air. And this one chap in the war maths department, I don't know his name, I should find that out if I'm telling this story again, which I I like to do. Uh, He figured out that the planes that were coming back with the bullet holes in them were not... You needed to find out where those planes had not been shot. Right. And armour in those places, because it was the planes that weren't coming back that had been shot in the places... That you hit the engines or whatever. Yeah, yeah that you the, were not seeing. Uh, mm-hmm. You didn't see those, and you don't see failure. Like, you can talk to successful people, and they can do everything right, you know, and they'll tell you what mistakes they made or, or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But talking to failures is much more important because they could do exactly the same stuff to as the successful people, and it's the... It's, the difference that you need to know. You need to know the difference between what they did. And sometimes that's elusive. Yes. You know, that's the kind of thing where it's like it, it ne- doesn't necessarily, you know, seem to be something that's very obvious. Like, you know, you could go to all of the personal growth and development seminars you want. And they're like, well, just stick to it and work hard and, you know, everything will be all right. Like, mm, there might be more to it than that. Yeah, because if yeah. you talk to a successful person, they go, I had a yeah. dream, I followed my dream, I worked really mm-hmm. hard, it was very hard, but yeah. I overcame that yeah. struggle. You want to yeah. talk and to the guy on the street That's corner yeah. who was like, I could have mm-hmm. been a contender. And you're, okay, why, yeah. why aren't yeah. you? That's the mm-hmm. guy you want to talk to. 
yeah, I worked hard. I did everything I was supposed to. I had a dream. And then, you know, I'm now I'm working at Denny's. So, you know, that's it's, you know, it doesn't it doesn't always equate. No, absolutely not. Um, so where can people find you online and support your ongoing work? Well, you can get to my website at uh, chrisjmancinionline.com because my name was already taken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that'll have um, links to um, the comic book and also the um, other things I've done, like the uh, Earbuds, the podcasting documentary, and uh, also some other, like my book on parenting, uh, Pacify Me, a handbook for the freaked out new dad. But uh, mainly, you know, the comic book, if you just want to try it out, it's only a $1.99 issue. Check it out on comicsology.com long ago and far away. Uh, I... As I said, I just downloaded it, so I'm looking forward to that. I love fantasy <laughs> novels, uh, and I love uh, comic books, so I'm excited to read it. Um, awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for having tea with me. Uh, oh, my pleasure. You know what? I have iced tea now. It's, it's just as good. That's super exciting. Lolly rifle, doll, lolly rifle, day.